Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Christy Jansen, Chief of Staff at the World Business Academy, and I am here with Ronaldo Brudico, the Academy's President and Founder. Benjamin Schwartz, our Assistant Producer, is here at the controls. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit dedicated to elevating the consciousness of people in the business community and encouraging business leaders to use their power and influence to take greater responsibility for the communities and the environment their work touches. We are recording the show on October 5th, 2019. Before we get going, I want to invite our listeners to reach out to us at info at worldbusiness.org if you have questions or comments about the show today, or if you have anything you would like us to discuss on future programs, we would love to hear from you. As always, you can listen to us on the go using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Blog Talk Radio, or your favorite podcast player. Just search World Business Academy. All right, so Ronaldo, we've got a lot to cover Boy, today in ever. this little half hour so, you know, segment. Um, we, we, we should mention in passing real quick. Um, hi, everybody. Uh, I did this uh, interview on Coast to Coast the Radio. Coast to Coast. It was like a two-hour interview. Because yeah. they wanted um, my take on the Middle East and specifically the situation around Iran, the, mm-hmm. the fact that Saudi Arabia got bombed with, by the Iranians, theoretically, or the Yemenis claim it, and how vulnerable the Middle East was, and why was it that way, and what to make of it, et cetera. And so if they write to us at worldbusiness.org and ask for a copy, that will tell them where they can get a link to it. Because that was a much longer conversation than I want to have today. I think it was a good conversation. Skip through with all those commercials, folks. There was way too many commercials in that show. But the conversation about which I where I went into the history of Middle East, going back a thousand years mm-hmm. to the death of the prophet, uh, up to the current time, and you know, how the alignments are changing and why, and the implications of Netanyahu's probably not going to make it. I don't think in filling his cabinet, we'll see. He's got two weeks to, to, to pull it off. I don't think he's going to make it. We'll see. But um, talked a lot about what a sane Middle Eastern policy would look like and what the insanity is we're doing that we're getting right now and how that insanity is going to only get more volatile, which I think is an unfortunately safe prediction. Mm-hmm. So, um, so if anyone wants a longer riff on the Middle East, that's the way to go here. Now, what we can say for today's show, though, is um, it's interesting that I believe the Saudi facility that was bombed, uh, the main one, was responsible for refining more than 5% of the world's oil supply. And it went offline virtually instantly as soon as the first missile struck. Mm -hmm. And it was offline for several weeks. Now, it's amazing it was only offline for several weeks. They they really scurried to get that repaired. Hats off to Aramco for knowing how to fix it that fast because they they got hit with 11 drones or something. But what it demonstrated to the whole world was the fragility of the political stability in the Middle East and that it could explode in the form of what if they had taken those fields out completely? Or what if the new scenario, now that Iran has begun enriching uranium to the point of fissionable, meaning nuclear fissionable material, what if they had hit that field, that oil field, with a dirty bomb? And which would have meant that you couldn't have gone in there to clean it up. And all of a sudden, 5% of the world's oil supply goes away. Well, if that were possible, the you would think that the world oil markets would panic beyond belief. In fact, when you take that much oil off the market instantaneously, in every prior occasion, oil prices have spiked dramatically. And yet... This was a barely a blip. Barely a blip. It, it never was, got above $65 yeah. a barrel. was at around 55 when it started. Got up to 65 Fell back to 53 before they even reopened it. And was at 52 two days ago. I'm not sure what it's at today, but... I think it's 53 again. 53. So but it's right there still. in the 50s. And why it stays there is because they, American oil companies make money at 43 Five to fifty dollars a barrel. They make a lot of money because you can frack for about forty-five dollars a barrel, a little bit less. So, as long as they make seven to eight dollars a barrel, 
uh, they're going to keep uh, doing it until the cows come home. And right now, we're the biggest exporter in the world. Certainly, we're when the Saudis went offline. Now, the 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 real lesson here, though, is, and I, this is what I got asked about in Coast to Coast Radio: How come oil didn't go to one hundred and twenty dollars a barrel? How come people didn't like freak out like they always have in the past? Why did it just barely go up? And now it's coming down. Actually, I think it's below now where it was the day it got struck. So tell me, Ronaldo, what is the answer to that? The answer question? is that there was so much oil building up in the reserves, in refined reserves, mm-hmm. all over the planet. Everybody's got, they're up to their eyeballs in oil. Three weeks ago, we did a show, and I think we talked about the fact that Russia and, the, and OPEC had reached a deal to temporarily reduce some pumping so that they could reduce the amount of oil hitting the global market. And I think it was like a 2% reduction. That was just to keep it in balance. And even with that 2% reduction, we were still awash in oil. Mm-hmm. So when you lost 5%, it actually, nobody ran out of oil. So the oil companies, which typically will use that kind of uh, incident to drive fear, and fear drives prices, and they'll reap as much money as they can for as long as they can. They couldn't pull it off because everybody smarts looking at demand curve. The demand curve on oil, clearly on a per capita person basis globally, is dropping. It's been dropping. It's, it's been, been dropping, dropping for, for years. And, and yeah. the... The expectation is it will continue to drop. Exactly. And, I think and, even the oil companies are starting to diversify their investments. Yeah, I, I think I mentioned on the show, there's a Shell Oil just bought Sonin, which mm-hmm. is the leading um, renewable energy controller system uh, in the world. So I think that the, uh, the reason I'm making this point is we now know that the whole world knows what we've been talking about. That is that we're, we're gliding imperceptibly slowly, but we are gliding irretrievably forward into the world of less and less and ultimately no oil. So we're going beyond fossil fuels. As we do that, we'll be forced to get deeper and deeper into the hydrogen economy. You will not see natural gas taking up the slack. It's only doing it temporarily. And you won't see sophisticated CO2 scrubbing systems added to filthy old coal plants as a way to solve the problem, because it won't. And the cost of that would be too high per kilowatt hour. So we're now in this new era where renewables will, will in fact overtake conventional fossil fuels. But to do that, renewables have to find a way to convert sunlight, wind, geothermal power into tremendous amount of electricity, no problem, and store it. Therein lies the rub, and there's where the hydrogen comes in. So hydrogen is both a storage medium, i.e. you can electrolyze water, split a molecule of water into two molecules of hydrogen, one molecule of oxygen. And you can split that apart, and when you do that, you got hydrogen. And when you go to put hydrogen through a fuel cell, it combines with ambient oxygen, and it creates electricity. So that electron you split off when you were splitting H2 from O, read bonds, and you get two byproducts. You get H2O, water vapor, and you get electricity. And that's what drives my car, my little uh, Toyota Mariah talk about that. It's also what drives the freight liners that Toyota's now building that are basically two fuel cell engines like mine. It's what drives the replacements for diesel and locomotives in Germany, which is hydrogen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we're well on the, on the curve now to hydrogen adoption California leading the way, of course. In fact, well, the, the George Nuri on the radio show asked me, he said, so can I get one of those cars and drive it across America? I go, well, you, you can actually make it across America. There is, if you be careful with your stops, you could actually make it. There are hydrogen facilities all over the country because it is an industrial mm-hmm. gas. But it's not like California where I can turn on my little app on my iPhone and I can find out where all 39 stations in California are, which ones are open today, which ones are mm-hmm. pumping, which ones are offline, and know instantly where to go to get my fuel. And are they are they investing? Is California also supporting investment in new hydrogen facilities? Yes, they, they, they've got a, their their statutory objective is to get from thirty nine <laughs> to two hundred. 
In fact, we're doing a project at the Academy right now trying to understand and isolate uh, where that build-out program is stalled right now and how it's going to get off the dime. And we, we just heard from one of our, our um, solar affiliates who's on the California Hydrogen Board that they're about to um, put the pedal to the metal again and open up some more stations. So I think they feel that they've absorbed, the, they, they have enough hydrogen being pumped at the existing stations that they can open more stations, which is great, and that will drain a break-even amount of hydrogen for the ones that already exist. Mm -hmm. I'm particularly excited about it because I'm hoping that the next station will be one between here and, say, San Francisco, between so Santa Barbara and San place Francisco. place to stop on the way. Yeah, because otherwise it, you can get there, but it's a little bit uh, yeah. scary. I mean, we're still, the electric vehicles are, are I mean, I guess the, your car is actually an electric vehicle. Yeah, it's an electric vehicle. Elect, but, uh, Runs off hydrogen a, gas instead of batteries. Yeah, we had a story in the Optimist Daily last week on a, a station in Maryland that has now completely gotten rid of all of its fossil fuel and it's just an electric vehicle charging station now. Yeah. Which yeah. is sort of interesting. So now even our current infrastructure is starting to move towards the support of electric vehicle. Yeah. And you're going to see um, a new hybrid type of station combining electrical charging and, and hydrogen refueling that's going mm -hmm. to happen. It's just like right now, this, almost all the stations are hybrid fossil fuel and mm -hmm. hydrogen. So mm -hmm. just see that continue in yeah. the new model. So, so that's the quick one on Saudi Arabia. Now, let's real quickly do uh, golden oil. So oil, uh, we've talked about, and just to give you some photo frame of reference, folks, uh, since October 5th, a uh, year ago, 2018, oil's down 28% in that year. Close the, to 29%, actually. Very close to 29 And you look at the S&P 500, or the stock market as a general measure, up 2%, 2.3 to be exact. You look at the Dow Jones, barely up at all, 0.4%, less than 1%. But you look at the percentage change in gold, it's up 25% in that same period. So compare 25% up against 28% down. Which, one of the, which side of that equation you want to be on? So once again, gold is proving to be a great investment vehicle that we keep recommending on this show. It's not too late to buy it. In fact, if you're still in the market, get out, way overpriced, get into gold. And um, we gave some tips on that last show. I'm not going to do it again. You know how to find gold shares and you know how to find the, the ones that we've referenced. Okay, so the, basically that's a quick sweep of commodities. Stock market's way overbought. That's why it went sideways a little bit last, down last week. Um, the economy clearly slowing in the United States. We have had a really negative manufacturing index report, uh, both globally and in the U.S. Um, and we've even had a slowdown in the service job sector. Uh, when the official ADP numbers came out, they pointed out that we only created 135,000 jobs last year. I mean, last month. Last month. And that's down from an average of 230,000 the year before, mm -hmm. all the way back to when Obama started in 2009 when he took office. So the, the, the point of that story is that the, the stock market values can't stay up when the economy is slowing down, profits are starting to get squeezed, and there's a new sobriety on the street. And that's mm -hmm. I think the best way to show, showcase that is that uh, when WeWork went to do its IPO, which was going to be this $15 billion IPO. Which is way overblown anyway. It was overpriced. But it was such a fiasco. And so you've heard the term, this is financial literacy now, the term unicorn in the business world means private company that gets over a billion dollar valuation. That private company called a unicorn has been the darling of the stock market because it's the perfect vehicle for speculation. Mm -hmm. they, don't, they don't make money. They're not expected to make money. They're just going to grow, 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 grow. And so it's, a, it's the ultimate hype. And um, there's been some real big disappointments in the market over the last couple of three unicorns. Clearly, Uber had a 
mess. I think Slack had a mess. There's, a, there's like at least three big unicorns that came out and then the stock just plopped. And pl and plumped, you know? yeah. So so the, so the market's getting a little more sober. It's like the, the, they're not in a drunken debauch anymore. That they're, irrational exuberance has started to fade. Started to fade. Someone's going to stop popping champagne words soon. And so what happens when we work trying to get its IPO out there, at first it came out one valuation, it did its Sherode show, and it's got SoftBank behind it, which is one of the most powerful investors in, in the world out of Japan. SoftBank was basically saying, look, we're going to keep buying stock as a private share owner. So let's get all get behind the public offering. And the market didn't buy it. And so much so that when they got through tearing apart why they weren't going to buy it, they said, not only do we know, we don't know if you're ever going to make money. This theory you have that you can be the largest uh, least lessee of office space in Manhattan, which they are, one of the largest, if not the largest, in London, one of the largest in San Francisco. So you're dominating the office market is not a bad theory if, in fact, it makes money. The theory of how it was supposed to make money is they would rent at bulk rates, mm -hmm. chop the space up into small rental units to individual business people, small startups, and charge a higher per square foot rate so that when you fill up the suite, you get more money for than what you pay. The problem with that model is uh, in their goal to grow so fast, and they were about to do $16 billion in growth. They wanted to put $10 billion of their own cash, and they wanted $6 billion of bank debt. And, and what they said, we're going to we're gonna buy even more square footage. And the market stepped back and said, you know, what is it with this growth, growth, growth thing? And they're, they're not even talking about how they're going to make money. And the, the, the CEO, like many of the CEOs, these unicorns, very charismatic guy, Adam Newman, and his, um, his approach when he was faced with this, like the marketplace reaction, like, when do you guys ever make money? He basically told them, you don't, you don't get it. My business model is like, I'm just going to grow, grow, grow. One guy pulled that off, Jeff Bezos. Mm -hmm. That's one of the few who pulled it off. Uh, you can say in a way Elon Musk is pulling it off, although I don't think, I think the jury's out on Elon Musk, and I certainly wouldn't be buying shares in Tesla today, even though they had their best quarter ever in terms of deliveries. They delivered 93,000 vehicles last quarter, which is astounding. Impressive. That's impressive. Very impressive. But the point of the story, <clears throat> to finish up on Newman and WeWork, by the time the conversations ended and they did their preliminary dog and pony show, SoftBank realized, and the board of directors realized, they couldn't do it at any price if Newman was still the CEO. Mm -hmm. That what the Wall Street was saying is, we don't have confidence in the person leading your team to ever get us to make our money back. And so why would we buy the stock almost at any price? And at that time, they pulled the offering. They had to pull. And Newman stepped aside. So what they'll do is they'll find a new CEO. Mm -hmm. That CEO is going to be picked, you can bet, by his ability to, or her ability to operate the business and make money on a per square foot basis. And at that point, when they start to look like they've turned that corner, then they'll go public again. With SoftBank behind them willing to continue bankrolling, and SoftBank isn't so deep they can't not be behind them, and with as much real estate as they control, they're in very good field position. The problem, ding, 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 is we're going into a recession, mm -hmm. as this job numbers just showed. So with manufacturing down, so said down more than it's been, I think the worst in 10 years of manufacturing, uh, when you look at the uh, job growth down to 132,000 from 235,000 a month, when you look at all these factors together, you go, who's going to take all that office space? Mm -hmm. So in a recession, one of the things you see is office buildings go empty. Right. And that would mean that WeWork would be uniquely vulnerable to a downturn. And I think the market, without saying it, is clear on that. And I think what happens when the marketplace told the board of WeWork that's what they thought, they approached Newman and said, well, what do you think? And he said, not a problem. And they go, wrong guy. <laughs> That's how I get fired. No one saw it coming. Meanwhile, he was already borrowing money against his shares well, yeah, before, so, the, before the before the offering well, that, was yeah, even well, done. Yeah, well, that's not uncommon. No, it, 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 he was it's cashing not, out before. Well, it was not, it's not uncommon to do that. That's okay. actually quite common in Silicon Valley. Um, and most of the you know high-powered entrepreneurs do that. 
he abused it. He, he was doing way too much for the size of company he had. He was way too, um, way too. What's the word? I'm aggressive mm-hmm. in his way of treating the company like it's his own piggy bank. Mm-hmm. He, and his his life, lifestyle, like, the lifestyle he adopted, got way too opulent. Yeah, it, it got silly for a guy his age that hadn't made a nickel yet. So anyway, they they reined him in. I'm just pointing that out because I think that is the for you, what you said is absolutely true. It's the beginning of the end of exuberance. The, this exaggerated exuberance, it's just unjustified on the basis of the fundamentals. It started to come home, and when you see Wall Street started to pull back, and these numbers, the pullback for the full year shows it's already happening. Mm-hmm. So I'm very pleased that Wall Street's getting more sober, and hopefully that will continue to be the case. Uh, on that subject, I, I want to go through the world a little bit. Japan last Tuesday did a very important thing. Uh, they just put in place some new uh, sales tax in effect. It used to be 8% in Japan. Now it's going to 10%. That's very important because Japan has the largest debt-to-GDP ratio in the Western world, in the industrial world. It has about 250% more debt than annual GDP. Hmm. To give you some comparison, we, for the first time in the history of the United States, just crossed over 200%, which is highly unusual for us because we never even got there at the end of World War II. We never got close to that after the Revolutionary War. And uh, that level of debt-to-GDP is a harbinger of serious potential economic problems in Japan. Uh, as it is, Japan is, is purportedly going to shrink by about 2.5% going forward, 2.7%, something like that is the current number. And that's generous because the last two times in uh, 1997 and 2014, when they did increase, notice how soon the 2014 was, just five years ago, mm-hmm. um, the Japanese government had to come intervene and mm-hmm. print money. And that's part of why uh, Japan got to have such a high rate of debt to GDP. Mm-hmm. So now... It, uh, Shinzo Abe, who's been in power about seven years, is saying, "Is um, I got to get this debt down. It's killing us." He's right; it is killing him. And that's but why he's raising sales tax. It's, it's why he's raising sales okay. tax. But his fear has got to be that um, he's going to end up further collapsing the economy, which is already which under is- the weight of this enormous debt structure. Mm-hmm. So watch China, Japan. Uh, they're an export-driven country. Global exports are down dramatically. We're not yet into global negative export growth, but close. Uh, and we'll close in on that sometime in 2020, and that'll hurt Japan disproportionately high. It will hurt Korea disproportionately. It'll hit the U.S. very high. So, and Europe's already been hit. So you're going into a global recession. And when you're going into a global recession, the last thing you want to do is be the biggest office <laughs> office, <laughs> office space. space holder in the world. Owner, exactly. And you also certainly don't want to have to um, have your money stuck in Japanese bonds or the Japanese market. But I want to say one other thing about the Japanese problem, which we've touched on on this show before. The core of the Japanese problem, unfortunately, is their racism. Right, and and because they're shrinking population, right, because they have they, no workers, right, so they have an they, aging population, they have an aging they live population, longer because they're healthier, mm-hmm. so way older, so it takes more young people to support one older person. Low birth rates, negative birth rates, negative birth rates, negative birth rates, and, and they don't like outsiders. They don't like you can be if you're a Korean and you've been there for two generations. I mean, you were actually your, your parents immigrated, you were born in the country, you are still not a Japanese citizen. And you're not treated the same. I mean, if you if you even look Korean, you're treated like a what you'd expect in a apartheid a subcast person. Yeah, it's an apartheid uh, group. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, and I always say, this, look at the Japanese flag. It hasn't changed since before World War II. The Japanese flag is a, a sun, a, a dot, in the middle of a white field. And what that dot represents is the sun. It's the it's the rising sun. And what people believe in Japan is they are dis- direct lineal descendants of the rising sun through the emperor. So that's why the emperor is a god. That belief causes them to then not accept anybody who isn't pure Japanese as part of 
their the tribe. society, right? They don't. So yeah. that's what makes them one of the most racist countries in the world, and um, that is what keeps immigration out. Now, if Japan took a different position and said, "Gee, there's a lot of hardworking people over in Africa looking for a home, or Syria, or give me your particular refugee crisis of the moment," if they let in a hundred thousand at a time into Japan, they'd end up with a workforce. And they would end up taking the jobs the Japanese don't want anyway. So the Japanese, I mean, the Japanese, for example, are the world's leading in, leader in self-cleaning toilets because they, they won't let anybody in the country to clean them, yeah. and they don't want to. I it's think they're, this, they're going towards robotics to help care for the elderly. Correct. You know, because that's another really high labor, yeah. low uh, low income yeah. kind of kind of profession. Yeah, yeah. And we so, have that issue here in the U.S. as well. We sure do. And so then There's the other... Some, some counties in Maine, I think, that are in a similar kind of situation. Aging, yeah. aging so yes, quickly. Yes, there are. More than one counties in Maine. I think there's counties in Virginia, every state. Okay, probably. Yeah. Uh, but, but so now I want to just talk on the global scene, what also is hurting Japan, it's hurting the U.S., China, everybody, is the tariff war. Mm -hmm. And the tariff war, which started out as... Um, I guess a way that Trump thought he would bludgeon China or something. I don't know what he was yeah, thinking. Put them into he put them in, a, in, their put in their place. And he, he tackled the wrong China. guys. So the bottom line is that Japan has got to realize that you um, have got to take a, uh, a different look at tariffs. So this week, a great column by Paul Krugman, by the way, in the New York Times, in which he said it's very rare that a president brings on a bad economic climate going into his own reelection campaign. Usually, you're the you're, you're the victim of it, not you don't go create it. Trump is unprecedented in many ways. In many ways, including starting the tariff war with China, which is doing more to depress the U.S. economy right now than almost anything else. And that got matched this week because in a quirk of fate, the long-running, mean seven or eight-year battle at the World Trade Organization resulted in a decision in favor of the U.S., saying that the French and the Europeans were unfairly subsidizing Airbus against uh, Boeing. And so they've been given the authority to impose $7.5 billion worth of tariffs on European goods. So never a guy to see a tariff he didn't like. Trump goes, oh, great, we win. <laughs> Let's start taxing French wine yeah, and so Italian Parmesan, cheese. Exactly. And like Parmesan cheese is going to go up 25%. I mean, you know, it goes, so he doesn't realize that when that happens, the money he collects is from consumers paying more in America. I don't know what fundamentally he doesn't get about that, but that's what he... So what does that do to our consumption capacity? Well, it further bleeds it, neck, it bleeds it down, right? And it further shrinks global trade. And since we are by far the largest importer in the world right now, this last year we're the only country that dramatically increased our imports, it's because we can't export. Dollar's too strong, and uh, Trump has not been concentrating on the industries that are better export candidates. He hasn't supported the uh, internationalization of some of the industries that, that we do best. And as a result, um, we're now in pretty bad shape when we were in good shape a couple of years ago. So I, what I'm looking for is consumer confidence has dropped this month. It's going to drop again. Uh, definitely, everybody and their brother knows we're going to have a recession by 2020. The only question is, will it start with a weak Christmas in November, December of this year? Or will we have a, okay, we'll just so barely we'll eke it out. Buy our way out of a recession for the, the, for Christmas, the end of the year. We might go sideways for Christmas. <laughs> but that's going to be it. And if you don't get a big up at Christmas, that'll be the equivalent of going down because going into the first quarter, mm -hmm. people will really be hitting mm -hmm. the panic button, particularly with consumer confidence going down. Mm -hmm. So that's that. I'm, um, I think that, and I'm, I want to draw attention to one last thing that's really positive. The African for Free Trade Agreement looks like it's going to go into effect. Very exciting. I think that could do as much good for Africa as the European Union did for the Europe continent. So I think I'm very excited about that. No one saw that coming. They didn't think the Africans were capable of pulling it off, and it looks like they are. So that's all very, very exciting. 
One more thing I want to talk about generically before we get to the point where I've got to wrap this up. If you didn't see the issue of The Economist, it's the September 21st to 27th, 2019 issue. The issue is called the climate change or the climate issue. And the cover of The Economist is a series of bars, of colored bars, going from rather deep blue color in 1850 to very red-brown colors in the year 2019. And what it symbolizes in vivid display, because you can see the display just instantly, you go, you're going blue to light blue to yellow to orange to brown. And what this is showing is the temperatures during those years. And what the, uh, why they call this the climate issue is because the economist, again, is calling on politicians in the various countries, step up quick, we're running out of time, which is what we talk about in the show all the time. I'm not going to talk about our current position on um, climate change. I think everybody knows it. I will do some, somewhat of a climate change update in the not-too-distant future. But I do want to point out that the climate change implications, adversely to the economy, that is, are enormous. Conversely, if we were to embrace climate change, and say, okay, let's make this the new uh, Manhattan Project, which was the project we developed to develop the mm -hmm. nuclear bomb. Let's throw all our resources, let's like, like, turn it into what academe does, let's turn it into what business does, let's turn it into what people Focus do. Focus together Focus on, on it. This could be it the could biggest be thing we ever do yeah. in our economy. One, one other comment on that, I think last weekend, the New York Times had a piece that was looking at real estate assets. And, and so much of the real estate market is invested in homes and properties which are at risk of being worthless, you know, and they're, and they're really starting to notice this, and, you know, and so... Well, and, and that ties something else. So we have a program in the United States called the Flood Insurance Program, mm -hmm. and that thing is in hopeless shape. And what it does is it encourages you to build at a place where you shouldn't, a barrier reef island, for example, and when you get wiped out, you, you get rebuilt. Get, well, what's happening now is a lot of people in the middle part of the country are not able to get flood insurance because historically their areas hadn't flooded until this year. So they're not designated as flood insurance areas. So when they get flooded, they can't get insurance to begin with, and now they're really wiped they're out. Just lost. And that's the, I just they described the that. Mississippi Valley. Right. And I described large chunks of the Midwest. Mm -hmm. um, and what, what, what is kind of crazy, and we keep running out of money, is we, we can't keep funding the insanity of people building in areas which are either unsafe from a fire point of view so, for example, in California, we now have a new statute. When you build in an area that's fire-prone, like Paradise, California was, a whole new set of rules are kicking in about the kind of construction you have to use. It has to be fire-safe, about how many exits there have to be to that city. I mean, it goes on and on. And uh, those rules in California are going to help us reduce, in the short term, the damage from climate change. But it's only in the very short term, because mm -hmm. that's like lighting a match in a hurricane. You right. can light it, it goes out pretty quick. Well, when you have a 30-year mortgage and you have maybe 10 years of coastline. Yeah, and, 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 and you know, the thing is, remember, coast, flooding occurs on the coast two different ways. One is kind of the classic Superstorm Sandy, where, it, you know, the wave comes in, and, you know, and it goes all the way to 39th Street. And that's unusual, That although it will repeat itself, because we know that the storms are getting stronger and, and more vigorous because of the heating of the oceans. But the real challenge is um, Miami. Where on a bright, clear, sunny day, you can stand on a street, literally a bright, clear, sunny day, and there's going to be seawater up to your knees. And their way to deal with that is to raise some of the streets a couple of feet, not realizing when they did that, that pushes more water off to the side in the shops that are now below street level. Right. So now they got a problem with where that water's going to go. And that's only like maybe a five-year fix. We can just put the whole city on jacks and jack it up. I mean. <laughs> well, and that's what they're seeing in the Middle East, too, in the Middle East, in the Midwest, rather, where some 
areas will put dikes along their river, but then it just pushes the water upstream or downstream to the other farm, right? And so yeah, and it's it's, it's, it's like at the end of the day, the neighbor. At the end of the day, uh, you've got to look at this thing systemically. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a systemic solution to climate change, which is a huge way to get rich and make money, so it's not like a bad thing. But you got you to address it. If you do the ostrich thing where you stick your head in the sand and you've got your tail feathers sticking up in the air, you'll get them shot off, no question. And I think what's happening, and I'll just end with this note on climate change, and I've got one last thing, subject, and that is, um, there's this farmer down in, in Georgia growing corn. Now, most people in, in America don't know that right now there's a terrible farming drought going on in the southeast part of the country. Hmm. So um, there's been over one month now of no rain in Georgia. Now, that's really substantial because Georgia relies on rain for its crops. Okay? So the corn that went in two, three months ago, a couple months ago, that by now should be as high as an elephant's eye, so to speak, right? They should be harvesting it, right? That corn cannot be harvested. It's completely gone. The entire crop is gone. Why? Because the drought's been so severe and so unexpected, these guys don't have irrigation. So this farmer who was on interviewed on CBS, basically, and they said to him, well, so what do you think's going on? He said, I've been doing this 34 years, and... I've never seen it like this in my life. A month without rain in Georgia and in the end of the summer. I mean, that's just like unheard of. And so the interviewer said, well, so what do you make of it? He says, well, you know, I wasn't quite sure for a while, but I'm starting to think there might be something to this climate change thing they talk about. So when he gets down to the cracker in Georgia on his corn farm, understanding that we have a problem, don't worry about it, elites. You can talk about it now. <laughs> it's safe to talk about. Okay. Uh, and clearly that is the problem. Okay. The last thing I want to just really touch on is major victory in California. And I'm so proud of Ellen Brown. Uh, in fact, we should send a copy of the show to her and to my dear friend and sister, Hazel Henderson, who has worked with Helen for many years. Uh, Helen launched a thing called the Public Banking Institute. It's Ellen Brown. Ellen Brown. Did I say Helen? Yes. Sure, I meant Ellen. Ellen Brown. I meant Ellen, excuse me. Uh, and and the, the Public Banking Institute uh, has been pushing behind uh, the, the scenes for state banking. Uh, the only state bank right now is in North Dakota. It started in 1919. And it was, um, it's been a huge success. In fact, the state bank in North Dakota went through the entire 2008 banking collapse with no bailouts and no serious default problems. Because all the people who borrow from North Dakota have to live in North Dakota, basically. And so it's a bank that uses its resources to reinvest in the community. So it's been a huge boon to North Dakota. And it's also been a huge boon to the people who rely on the banking system. Because in the other 59 states, we all got cratered. Well, California just passed and became the second state. And what California did, which is even more aggressive than um, North Dakota, California is permitting cities and or counties, so municipal level jurisdictions, to form their own banks if they want. It'll take a lot of um, paperwork, it'll take a whole bunch of hoops to jump through, but basically within a year or two, you'll start seeing public banks open up. I will be pushing for one here in Santa Barbara County, you can be sure. I'll be pushing for one um, conceivably um, at our city level if we had a good city council, which one day hopefully we will. Um, I'll be pushing for it at the state level as well to reopen that banking bill and see if we couldn't have a statewide bank because that thing could finance high-speed rail. It could finance all kinds of things that are multi-jurisdictional. But let's start with Santa Barbara County. Great. Happy to do it here. Let's get our own local bank. And I'm so grateful Newman signed it last week. And it's one of the best things that's gone on in our California economy for a while. That plus got to look at the fact that uh, we're now in a lawsuit with the federal government over the EPA guidelines. I believe we'll win that lawsuit. I think that the 
the uh, I, I have not. I, I meant to do it before today's show. I meant to read the pleadings. I haven't had a chance to do this it. This is yet. in relation to the the cafe. Standards the EPA, the cafe the, standards, yeah, the, the, the car, the, yeah, the uh, fuel standards for mm-hmm. emissions for fleet vehicles, uh, fleet emission standards, and and the corporate average fuel economy standards. So that's what the fleet emission standards. And um, we're at this point where the federal government is taking the position that we should allow dirtier, more carcinogenic air after what we went through in California to clean our air up. Uh, is it's, it's not only insane on every level, it's offensive. It is. I remember being a 13-year-old boy, not able to ride my bike long distances because the smog was so bad. Yeah, I, I had, we had smog days in Los Angeles when I was in elementary school. Yeah. We'd have to stay home. Yeah, or indoors. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so I, I just want to just point out I'm so proud of California for fighting that. I think they'll win. I think the car manufacturers are all behind them, not just the three or four that have already signed up. And I think that um, the Trump will lose because the marketplace wants more efficiency. The customer wants better miles per gallon. The customer wants electric vehicles. And the customer will drive this because General Motors doesn't want to make two kinds of cars. They want to make one for California and have everybody else drive it. Right. And with markets shrinking globally, their car companies are going to be more dependent on domestic markets, i.e. GM, Ford, Chrysler, etc. are going to be more dependent on cars here. And they're going to have to compete with other companies making cars here, like Toyota, etc., Nissan. And Volkswagen, which is now Volkswagen. going all electric, right? Isn't that their they wanted, if They said they're going to go all electric. Well, you know, they still are now facing a massive fine and lawsuit in this, Germany. So we'll see what happens mm-hmm. to our friends in Volkswagen. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's amazing how corrupt that culture got. I don't think it's unique. I think there's a lot of corrupt corporate uh, cultures. It's just they got caught real bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to think American business has higher more noble aspirations than what the Volkswagen executives clearly did. But I can't say that with confidence. Uh, but I, what Ken say is, if we have good EPAs, environmental protection agency, if we have legitimate regulation at the SEC level, there'll be less exuberance. We want to worry about the market going crazy again. If we have better regulation on Wall Street, that's going to give us a better banking system. If we have a better banking system at the state level, it's going to force a better banking system at the federal level, and on and on and on. So we can rebuild this one block at a time. <clears throat> or to view it another way, the values that California has are actually what a vast majority of Americans want. They just don't know how to get it because they don't live in California. All the people who come up to me, and typically these are one percenters or two percenters, and complain about the taxes in California, and you know, why don't you move to it? There are no taxes in Nevada, and you know, they old rap. And I go, yeah, but like, what do you get in Nevada? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean. I want my children to go through school for free through all the way through the UC system. That's what I'm after, and I think we'll get there. Mm-hmm. The federal government may or may not get there, but we'll get there in California, mm-hmm. and we'll get there soon. That's what I want. I want to have a better health care system. I want to have a better transportation system. I want to have a safer environment. I want to have community policing. I mean, there's a lot of things I want in my community, which I can get in California, that I can't get in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, for example. And so I think what you're going to see is a continuing differentiation between those sectors of the country that are healthy, that have progressive economies, uh, which would be California, you know, Washington State, Oregon. Uh, increasingly, you're going to see Massachusetts. Uh, you're going to see increasingly other states seeing this model going, okay, we bought the, we drank the Kool-Aid about lower the taxes on the rich and it all trickled down, and it didn't work. I mean, Kansas being the best example, right? Kansas basically bankrupted itself doing that. Yeah, and Colorado is an example of a, a state which is going in that direction. They, they, but they're trying to balance it. Colorado's an interesting experiment. They're, because they're making so much money on legalized marijuana, and because they've made so much money being a tourist destination, that's only the last 10, 12 years that's mm-hmm. happened. That um, they, Colorado's trying to balance targeted user taxes, so that, that would be a marijuana tax, 
in lieu of general system-wide taxation. Okay. So I think that's not a bad idea. Um, what we do it in California with, with highways, for example, you notice how many more highways have toll booths now in mm -hmm. California and fast pass, you know, lanes, et cetera. Well, what that is is a reprivatization of the road system. Mm -hmm. Now, people don't realize, but every road in America of any length was private in the days of the revolution, right? There, there were no public roads, so to speak. They were, if, if they were public thoroughfares, because nobody maintained them. But if you wanted to go quickly on a good uh, track between Boston and Washington, or Boston and New but York. Isn't that kind of a regressive tax? Well, it is and it isn't, but it's targeted. In other words, mm -hmm. the idea of being in a, in a toll route, route, I think it's particularly regressive in California because what it does is it bottles up more and more people on the remaining lanes that are free, quote unquote, causing them to spend more time and fuel wasted. And the rich in the fast lanes go fast. That's why it's regressive. Mm -hmm. However, where it's positive is that the use of the road drives how much road you get. In other words, the more money that toll booth collects on a road, the more you're going to have the income mm -hmm. to continue building roads. So there's a there's a trade-off, uh, you know, and, and there's and, and it's a decent trade-off because if you if I said to you, well, look, should we be subsidizing train travel in California? I think everybody would say, sure. Why? Because you could buy a first-class ticket or you could buy a coach ticket. So that's not regressive. But having a ticket price at all, you could say it's regressive, right? Why can't I go free to San Francisco? The answer is because we believe transportation historically in this country, we've always paid for it as a private good, mm -hmm. not a public good. Okay, if that's the case, how do we then get that private good to be more available to more people on a fair basis? And I think there's a balance. And when you do a sales tax across the board, that's the most regressive because the people who spend the least as a percentage of their income are the poorest. Right. The people who spend, who spend, the, spend the most, most as a percentage. And the people who spend the least is are the rich, right? Mm -hmm. So I misspoke there. So the point is, you want you don't want regressive taxation. That's the whole theory behind our internal revenue tax code on income, is that the more you make, the more you can afford to pay because it's not biting into you as hard. Well, I think there are a lot of innovations that are coming in the taxation world, including, I hope, negative tax, which is what Andrew Yang is basically making so popular. I noticed mm -hmm. that he's now up to about 11% of the Democratic Party supports him, which I think is a good thing. Well, I think that's not particularly regressive. I think that's progressive, mm -hmm. the negative income tax of $1,000 a month. So there are lots of different ways to rejiggle all these pieces. And my comment to you was, Christy, that use taxes are the worst. Targeted use taxes, if they're properly regulated and blended in with the with the public good system, can actually, actually be a be plus. And, and so I think uh, uh, we're in a new era there. And with the public banking capability now in California coming along, we'll be able to fund these public good projects with more public good money, but I suspect it will still cause someone to have to be a private signatory mm -hmm. for the cash. And so that private signatory will get a benefit because they're gonna take an economic risk. The public bank gets a benefit called interest that they have to redeposit in California, and the society gets a, a new road or bridge or whatever the infrastructure piece is that's gonna be partially paid by the public and partially paid by the Microgrid. Yeah. And you know, the, the desalination plant. Yeah, the best example right now, we'll wrap with this, is a, of an unfortunate use tax is what's happening to the public parks the last mm -hmm. 10 years. So public parks were ostensibly there for everybody to go so that anybody could go to the public park. That was the, that was Teddy Roosevelt's first mm -hmm. park, right? And now it's becoming so expensive as they're using the fee to get into the park, not just to maintain the park, because we know part of the fees have now been diverted to build the wall, which has nothing to do with parks, right? So the, the southern wall is diverting fees from the park system, so there's fewer rangers. So they can I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh. So less traffic can go through the parks, so they're raising the fees which will further reduce the traffic. Well, I think that's a terrible regressive thing, and it's the exact opposite of what that particular thing was. Can you imagine if they had a public tax, if you had to pay a dollar to two dollars for your kid to ride on the swing down the public park here in Santa Barbara, you'd be outraged. Well, it's the same thing at Yosemite. Yeah. 
the same thing. So it's like we, we need to reclaim our public spaces. Uh, we, we need to say some things are too precious, like a uh, part of the, the Southwest that's been inhabited for 1,400 years that they want to now go you know, Drill destroy oil for oil. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so it's mind. like we have to look at these issues with a fresh eye and with a much more solid, integrated, holistic view of how these pieces all fit together. With that in mind, however, those of you listening, and we're going to sign off today, uh, please take our advice to protect your resources, get into gold, get out of the stock market, um, send us in your questions or your comments, Have us tell us what you want us to focus on, and we'll be doing it again in two weeks, and I hope everybody has a great two weeks between now and then. Thanks for listening.